This is the EPLOG audio experience. You are listening to the Artist Podcast with me, Suchita. Stay tuned. Why do you go to the movies? Why do you want to make a movie? How is AI going to impact this in the near future? How this might create a tectonic shift in our very understanding of what a movie looks like. Stephen Follows is our guest for today. Stephen is an established data researcher in the film industry whose work has been featured in the New York Times, the Times, the Guardian, etc. Stephen has taught at major film schools like NYU on topics of business of film producing to the psychology of film producing. You can find Stephen on stephenfollows.com. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to a podcast, The Artists. And thank you for being here and taking out time. And I'm a big fan of your blogs. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. I'm very happy to be here. And um, yeah, happy to have uh, a fan. And it's so amazing because I get all of my data, all my knowledge from your blog. And I think everyone should follow it and subscribe to the newsletter Stephen follows. So informative and so timely. Just to start off, Stephen, your project, your very interesting AI project about writing a screenplay, mm-hmm. which you're doing along with another techie. How's that going? Yeah, it's a fascinating project. So um, this is uh, a scientist in Sweden I'm collaborating with. He's a cosmologist by by training and mm-hmm. uh, is using none of those skills uh, in the project we're doing together. He's, mm-hmm. His name's Elial, and we've worked together for a few years and bring, trying to bring art and science together to create genuinely interesting projects, not just a picture of a black hole or whatever. Um, and he, was, he had early access to GPT-3, which is the slightly older brain that's behind chat gpt and this was about a year and a Mm. half ago Mm. and he before he got access to it he was saying to me oh there's this new ai model everyone's talking about that's very limited access and they say it's too scary to give to everybody else but i think it's all bullshit because it's the kind of stuff that scientists say and then one day he got access because he'd applied and said look i'm a scientist can i have access and he said yes and then he called me up and said it's it's real like it's really scary (laughs) you know it can do things and so my first thought was well can it write stories and so we started playing around with that and I was teaching at the time in New York at NYU and I was meeting producers uh, anyway because of stuff in my blog and I started telling some of these producers um, look I think it's at the stage where it can write a screenplay not a particularly good one but it can do that um, and this was in uh, April last year April 2022 and so uh, a couple of the producers were interested in hiring us and so we played them off against each other and one of them gave us a deal um, at it's not we're not in the union and neither is the ai but it's at wga minimums and it's mm. a treatment a 10 page treatment and then moving to screenplay format and so we went away and did that last summer and um we we don't really we didn't it was before chat gpt so we didn't have an easy interface we had to sort of do a lot of coding calling the ai and making it into different instances you're a writer now you're a an editor now you're a studio exec and getting it to pass ideas between them mm. Um, because our project was very deliberately not the way anyone will create work, if ever, but certainly not in the near future. Mm. Because we didn't want to give it any creative input. You know, no genre, no title, no plot, no characters, no no feedback even. Mm. We wanted the AI to do every part of the process. 
from creation right the way through to delivery. And so that deliberate sort of limitation was where the art came from in, in the science experiment. And yet, really, as we know, year on, just over a year on, people are using AI and they're not using it to offload the entire job. You know, AI is not going to replace writers, but it might replace some of the tasks that writers do. Or a writer might be replaced by a writer who does use AI because it's, you know, like moving from using a pen to using a laptop or starting to use spell check. It's, it's not fundamentally you, but it's making you smarter, faster, quicker, better, whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we delivered our treatment and we, we actually, we built a whole code base to run it. And so we could, we ran it once to deliver the official tr- uh, treatment and then we ran it 20 other times and delivered them as well. <laughs> Um, mm. Not to get paid anymore, but just so that they, they could see how <laughs> different these ideas were. They were all different mm. genres and different ideas. Some were good, some were not. Mm. Um, and then officially, we're still waiting to hear. I think it's a Hollywood no, insofar as they, I don't think they're going to pay us to do any more work on it, especially now, you know, ChatGPT is free and mm. ubiquitous, whereas a year ago, this was space age and cutting edge. So it just goes to show how much things have changed in a year, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you see the future being that a writer getting replaced by another writer who's using an AI to write. Yeah, I mean, I remember uh, just um, mobile phones had already come out by the time I was at film school. But I do remember there was at least one producer mm. who didn't want to have a mobile phone. And that was a similar situation where the rest of us, I was a producer as well, were thinking, how can you do your job without a mobile phone? Mm-hmm. Because And he was like, well, because he was slightly older and he'd also doing some producing beforehand he was like no we've never had them before and so it wasn't that we were better that the rest of us were better producers because we had a mobile phone hmm. it was more just yeah. that we could do certain things that he couldn't or we could respond quicker or whatever hmm. so it's more like that this is a, a tool or a suite of tools that hmm. will become integrated and become expected and, and you know you, you if you can't deliver a screenplay now on a notepad you have to use it in final draft format or pdf yeah. hmm. it'll be, be the same but there will be writers and they, it's a craft and a skill that certainly not in the immediate future, AI will just be able to replace. Mm, that's very interesting. Do you, since you've worked in that format, Stephen, tell me, do you think that the AI thinks or can deliver the emotions the way a human can think and deliver? So yeah, the interesting question here is the first point to say is that the AI doesn't really think, it doesn't yeah. feel, it has no lived experience, it has no yes. intention, no sense in it. So, you know, uh, it's not sentient. Mm-hmm. However, Hmm. let's not forget that writers are liars, actors are liars, everyone is involved <laughs> in lying. That's what we do. You retell what just happened to you to your friend, you're mm-hmm. lying. Yeah. Now, to varying degrees, every you know, but this is this old idea that every photo is a lie. And so when you, because I've seen Armageddon, and I'm absolutely certain they haven't been to an asteroid. I mean, that may be a bad example because they may not care. But I've seen films about people go through torment that the writers did not directly experience, even if they have a comparable experience or whatever. I don't wish to downplay people's lived experience, but more just to the point that every piece of work, even based on truth, is a perspective that is based on extrapolation. And and so the AIs are uh, certainly not in the near future ever going to have these experiences, but can they suitably fool us into enjoying a movie? Well, then, yeah, quite possibly. And in some ways they can now, but it's going to take a bit further and it's going to take a bit more clever use by the people operating them or writing with them but we're all tricking each other into feeling things so there's Mm. no reason why that thing couldn't trick its way in either Mm. you know makes just as much sense to me Mm -hmm. interesting Stephen you have been on the blog 
10 plus years and I was checking uh, most of your uh, blog pieces, your articles, data, you're a data person. And uh, with these 10 plus years, Stephen, your analysis in terms of why do people go to the movies then and now? I think that there's, there. I mean, my blog is largely for the film industry rather mm. than for the public. Occasionally I write things the public are interested mm. in, like mm. whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or why popcorn costs the word, what it does. But mostly I'm writing stuff for the industry. And we have mm. to remember that we are an industry of storytellers telling stories about how we tell stories. So the the reliability of the way we see the, perceive the world and, and art is is questionable at best. So, for example, we think that people go to the cinema to see the movie, whereas I think mostly people go to the cinema to see the person they're going to the cinema with or Mm. to experience something big and dumb and loud or to be in a space that they can hold that they can't hold at home. So, for example, you can watch the same indie movie in the cinema or on Netflix, but in the cinema, you might be more hushed and quiet and pay attention, not pause it and, you know, whatever. So actually, it's not as simple as I want to know what happens to these characters because you can almost invariably do that easier than you can in the cinema but the cinema provides something i mean it's probably the cheapest most flexible social thing you can possibly imagine because the films are all over the place they're not that expensive compared to theater is 10 times as much sports maybe even more music's more and you can say oh we're going tonight we don't know what we're going to see we'll just see what's up there or you can say well who's joining us four or five people i don't know just see who turns up that serves a massive social function, you know, dates, something to occupy the kids. And so that's why I'm fairly hopeful about the concept of cinema as a, as a thing outside, is to, as a physical activity, because it serves a function that isn't really about the movies. Mm-hmm. And again, with Netflix, I don't watch Netflix to experience art. I do it because I'm tired or because <laughs> I want to feel good or I want to feel bad or I want to laugh or I, I mean if it was simply about watching new work i'd see many more good indie films and i would have watched the rewatched the office far fewer times mm. it's it's most of the people outside the industry have a much more transactional relationship with art than we as the artists think mm. yeah so it's purely for you know your outing you getting entertained it has nothing perhaps nothing to do with your skills well, I wouldn't say nothing. I would just mm. say that there's horses for course. I mean, like if it was, if, okay, let's say we were all chefs mm. and we were assuming that everyone tries to eat the best, most healthy, tastiest food, we might be confused why McDonald's exists mm. or why people are always eating sandwiches at lunchtime, even though they're just not that nice. Mm. And it's because people are experiencing food differently. And we're, you and I are probably experiencing food the way the public are, but we're probably not experiencing movies the way that the public are. And there's a fun test that I do when I'm with students because I teach quite, you know, on the side here and there. And I do a fun experiment when I'm talking about something like this, especially with film students, where they all think, oh, no, we're all the same as the public. And I'm like, okay, let's have a look for a show of hands. How many of you would go to the cinema by yourself as a secondary Mm. for going with someone else? But if there's a movie you wanted to see and couldn't find anyone else, would you go by yourself? And almost every hand goes up, if not every hand. Mm. And then I say, all right, how many of you would go bowling by yourself? And then no hands go up. There's usually a laugh of like, oh, that's for sad losers. Whoa. And I was like, no, 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 no. The public think they're the same. Because mm. <laughs> in, both ca- in both cases, you're just, you, you doesn't, the other person isn't making it better because you're, you are, you know, yeah. having your go in bowling or you're sitting quietly in a dark room. Mm. So the public think that this is like a loser goes to the cinema by themselves. We think someone's there to appreciate the movie properly and they're really committed to it. So it, we forget that we're, 
inside a bubble. And that's fine. But we forget that, especially when we start wondering why Transformers is outperforming some other movie or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Tell me, Stephen, uh, you were at Cannes and uh, we have been seeing a lot of changes post the pandemic in terms of, uh, you know, why do people watch movies? Like we are moving towards a more commercial space, even film festivals like a Berlin uh, is encouraging more commercial cinema. The sales have dipped drastically as the Sundance data is showing for indie films. Do you see a movement more towards a commercial space and something that independent cinema would not be able to catch up with? It's a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, there is a lot of transformation going on in the film industry. Some of it's mm. very visible and some of it's sort of behind the scenes. One of the things that film festivals are changing, um, not entirely from one binary point to another, but they are shifting slightly in, in the roles that they play. So in the past, it might have been that a festival was the first and only place for discovery. You know, if you wanted the next big indie film as a distributor, you had to go to Sundance, you had to go to the premiere, and then you had to argue in the lobby with all the other people who wanted to pick it up as well. Mm. Whereas now, that's not necessarily the case. There are many more ways of getting films out there, getting seen, building up communities, um, even if it's as simple as a Vimeo link. You know, there are ways of getting people to discover your content that don't just involve a festival. So festivals are losing some of, some festivals are losing some of their discovery magic. But they're also, on the flip side, providing a different service as well, where fewer and fewer films percentage-wise are going to theatrical release. So the the festival might be the only theatrical release. You know, I saw Coda in, at Sundance and they were saying this might be the... Uh, Sundance London, they said this might be the only physical screening of this because Apple had just bought it. And so what... And, and because more film festivals are doing screenings where people are being, buying tickets, the public are buying tickets, more of that money is going back to the filmmakers. And so maybe festivals become slightly less about discovery and a bit more about a revenue stream. You know, not a huge one. Even even, even three packed out screens, uh, screenings won't transform mm -hmm. the, the the finances of a major film. But mm -hmm. for an indie film, you know, if it's a, uh, a filmmaker like, there's a, a filmmaker called Neil Breen who makes very uh, unique films uh, and they're sort of a cult classic. He's just made his sixth uh, feature film. And I saw it at a, uh, a packed out screening, sold out screening, uh, in a cinema for sci -fi, at the Sci-Fi London Film Festival last month. And I can imagine, I don't know what the budget of his films are, but I do not think it's a lot. Uh, and so a few sold-out screenings at big festivals probably does make a big impact on his profitability for his indie films, and that allows him to pursue his art and do the films that he wants to make. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. So it's not for everyone, but this, that might actually help indie films way more. You know, no studio film is going to make its money from a film festival. Top Gun Maverick didn't make any money from Cannes. Mm. But if you're uh, a small film and you get a, a niche sci-fi horror screening and it sells out two or three screenings, that mm. might be many thousands of pounds in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Do you see the, the, uh, the, the gap between a studio and an indie film increasing by the uh, next five years or so? Well, I think, I mean, the, the, the third factor there is what streaming services, you know, these large uh, series and also you know, like Disney Plus as well. Some of those things might have been feature films in the past and, and some may have been made as feature films and have been released essentially as digital content, certainly during the pandemic. I mean, personally, I do think cinema 
going will change. I, 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 I can't say this is definitely the case, and it's not that the data proves this categorically, but from what I can see, I think cinema going in person will split, bifurcate into two sort of experiences, which is the big, loud, dumb stuff, which is mm. you want it to see it in IMAX. You want it on the week it's come out. It's, you know, it's culturally re- relevant. And that dumb doesn't mean bad necessarily. It could be Oppenheimer. It could be Mission Impossible. But you want to go and see it in the cinema because the cinema is the loudest, biggest. It's social, all that stuff. And then secondary, secondly, there's this uh, rise of premium cinema where you're paying maybe twice the price the, for, than for the cheap multiplex. But you've got a really fancy seat or a sofa. You, they serve red wine. Um, the Everyman or Picture House in the UK, those chains make really lovely experiences. Um, and it's from a slightly older audience and much more likely to skew towards indie films, although mm. not entirely. I'm sure they'll have screenings at these you know, plush cinemas for some of the blockbusters. And so that becomes more of a premium night out and, and never quite reaching the price of a West End show. But it's that audience, the ones that are, don't mind paying £25 for a cinema ticket because they want to sit on a lovely seat and drink red wine. Um, so I think that kind of bifurcation is probably going to happen. And the low end with the popular masses going seeing very large, fun films, and then perhaps a skew towards indie for fancier, nicer uh, cinemas. Mm-hmm. You mentioned on one in one of your blog posts, Stephen, about the, emo- the emotional promise of genres. So you're talking about joy, sadness, fear, disgust, anger. So when you talk about the elements of genre, Stephen, uh, do you think that these elements are working globally now as we call ourselves as a global village? Or do you see that it's culturally relevant and differs from you know, culture to culture? Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I mean, certainly there are some things that have always been different culture to culture. You know, comedy is a good example where you might have more family comedies and uh, in, say, Italy, um, whereas you might have something slightly harder in French and you and fewer comedies in Russia, for example. So the, cult, the culture and how they interact with humor has always been relevant. Um, but I also think that it affects the type of movies because the more the heart of the movie is visual or at least non-verbal, the better it will travel. You know, um, I don't think Transformers is a better movie or worse movie in its original language. It is what it is. Um, and so you will dub it another language, but it's not going to lose coherence. Uh, I don't think it can lose something it doesn't have, but it's not going to change. Like a fireworks show works around the world, right? Mm. Um, whereas somebody um, living a very particular life, a very particular experience is more likely to relate to people in the, close to their world, mm. whatever that is, their gender identification, location, language, whatever it might be. Mm. Although obviously some of the big things that happened, like you know, Squid Game, very culturally yeah. relevant and yet mm. travel. So I think um, Old Parasite, incredibly great film. And yet actually it's a real satire on, on, you know, on South Korea and South Korean economics and stuff like that. Some of that will be translating to others and some of it won't. But it doesn't matter if everyone's sort of enjoying it. So, yeah, I think we're, we're homogenizing the experience across the world because we're all humans. And at the same time, when something is really authentically, specifically, or oh, that's you know, really South Korean, I'm going to learn something and be exposed myself to South Korean culture by watching it. It also does well. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the overall lesson here is, because Netflix have learned that if they can Netflix and and all of them, but I'll use that as an example. If they pick up a piece of content for the whole world, it obviously is most cost effective and it helps them with their servers and all the, all the, you know, they'd prefer to do that. It's one deal, but they're also learning that local content is where perhaps you're going to get the most bang for your buck and most interesting stuff and you want 
the crown to be made in Britain and you want Squid Game to be made in South Korea and Tiger King to be made in America or wherever. Um, so I don't know what there is. There is a wider lesson or whether it's that both these things will happen. Most of it will shoot for the middle and some of it will become more of an extreme outlier. Why do you think Squid Games worked? And if it worked such a, in such a big manner, in a, such a big fashion, why did it take 10 years for a studio to greenlit it? The algorithms well, I, were not sort of working in its favor? Well, I think that, I mean, there's a certain amount of randomness that we all as humans enjoy. We don't know what we're going to like. If we knew, mm. you, I can tell you, I mean, people talk about um, studios making bad films or making films that are obviously unpopular. The, the studios have worked. They have the, the smartest, best, most talented people who want to do this working continually to try and give us stuff only that's a success. And their mm. hit rate is still only about 50-50. It's really hard you know, mm. to find a cultural moment and to predict something. And I, I challenge anyone to be able to pick Squid Game out of the other, I don't know, 500 other shows that yeah. could have been commissioned by the same sort of people that were being pitched to them in the year that Squid Game was being pitched. So even being commissioned was an amazing piece of sort of, you know, they, they saw something in it, but then they didn't expect it to do what it did. Otherwise they wouldn't have released it the way they did. So I think we, because we have more data nowadays and because we venerate data we and because we can create charts and graphs very easily, we think things should be predictable. Whereas, I mean, God knows if the last 10 years of news haven't showed us anything, nothing's predictable. <laughs> and, you know, like you can get a vague trend, you know, it was hot last summer, it's probably going to be hot this summer, but mm. really exactly what's the weather going to be like next 3rd of July? Mm. I don't know. And unfortunately, because of the lead times in these kind of productions, you need to predict it quite far in advance. Or you need to spray and pray and make so much content and license so much stuff and then just hope that once every six months you get a Stranger Things or a Game of Thrones and then that pays off all of the other, you know, it's the venture capitalist model, you know, one in 20 might make you money, but as long as it makes you at least 20 times the money, that's fine. Tell me, uh, Stephen, in terms of the AI, uh, do you think that AI analysis of a script that uh, I think a lot of shops have opened now in terms of getting your script uh, analyzed. The studio also wants that way, you know, you get your scripts analyzed. Like you just mentioned, do you think that it guarantees a certain amount of success? No, I'd say no. I mean, I have a friend who's a script reader for a major studio and mm. I was asking him what the hit rate is. What's the recommend rate? As in of the ones he's paid to read, mm. how many does he think are actually worth reading? He was like, oh, it's under 10%. And this is a major studio paying him to read them. And so they're not wasting their money for nothing. So we have to acknowledge that there's so many scripts and yeah. so few good ones. That the fil and the filtering process is highly imperfect. Even with a, a talented reader, they're bringing their taste, they're bringing their experience. They might miss something that doesn't look right. Um, there was a lot of conversation apparently when the original UK version of The Office, the TV show, was in development, mm. and the um, the script consultant uh, said that this, that, you know, looking at these episodes, they're going to be. 20 minutes long and they need to be half an hour long mm. and Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant went no 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 the way we're going to shoot them they're going to be half an hour and they just they they had a vision for it that mm. bucked the trend in a, in a very subtle way but a way that made a big difference and so if you only look at what you've had before you're going to miss the, the the unexpected and the creative and so that's one of the things about the AI even if even if AI gets good enough to really analyze a script on a on a really deep level it may not be able to tell something that what we haven't seen before so for example 
I guess I guess it's okay. It's a two step process. Now, could could an AI invent surrealism? You know, mm. if we never had surrealism, if we never had Dali, could could an AI create that, like melting clocks and things like that? Mm. And the second question is, if it did, what would we do? Mm. Because if we'd never seen surrealism and it created it, we might throw it out and be like, Ugh, AI doesn't realize clocks can't melt. Mm. Um, so. The, the, the artistic process and even the business of art is highly imperfect and highly messy and inefficient. And so I'm not sure wide scale like uh, AI adoption is actually going to then suddenly fix that. That's that's a sort of inherent thing in the system, isn't it? Mm-hmm-hmm. So the studios insisting on AI analysis, do you think that's justified? Well, it depends what they do and how they use it for. I mean, uh, what I would uh, let's use a slightly silly example. If they want to check whether the formatting and spelling is correct, then that's the right way of doing it. There's no reason for paying a person to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're saying is this good art, then it's definitely a misuse of AI at this point, and maybe always will. But there may be things that they can use it for. I mean, I use one of the things I use AI for a lot is um, just moving around the text in a different way. So, for example, AIs or I mean, there's a certain memory issue that they're getting over because they can't take in too much text but putting that to one side what an ai is terrific at is if you can feed it a script and say who are the major characters Mm. you know how often do they speak and what is the tone of their voice you know are they sarcastic are they funny are they they verbose do they swear ais Mm. can do that with a heartbeat and that and that will very quickly if not already feel like a ridiculous thing to pay a human to figure out Mm. but if you then start saying is this good art will this make money Mm. i don't know yet I mean, we don't know whether we're going to keep just making them smarter and smarter or whether at some point we'll hit some sort of bump in the road or whatever, but Mm. we're not there yet, that's for certain. Mm -hmm. Do you see AI impacting film financing in what way? Well, I think the thing we have to remember about film financing is that uh, fundamentally most films, and on indie films, the vast, vast, vast majority of them lose money. But what happens when the film loses money is honestly nothing. As in, the people behind it will try and make another film. And you don't get your artistic license revoked because you lost money. Mm. Uh, you just got to convince some more investors. And most investors don't invest multiple times anyway. Mm. So uh, I did a study with um, Bruce Nash, who runs the numbers. We did a study for the uh, American film market before pre-pandemic, where we looked at the correlation between the experience of a producer and the likelihood that their next film would make money. Um, mm. And we found no correlation. Mm. meaning that if you were a first-time producer, you had about the same chance of making money with your next film as the, someone who just made 50. Mm. Uh, because, I mean, you, you probably won't get a good enough deal. You may not want to make the films of the same size. You know, I'm not saying there won't be any impacts at all, but more just that it's fundamentally not about experience making you better. So I'm not sure that it would affect it because if we were genuinely trying to make money as a wider industry, we would be better at it. Um, mm. I just don't think, I think there's a lot of performative, oh, we're trying to make money. But really, if every film was genuinely trying to be a business, there'd be far fewer of them and we'd be making different choices, which mm. I'm in favor of because it means we're making artistic, passionate choices based on love. And, you know, some of the most important decisions in the world are, are ridiculously illogical. And, you know, that's, I have no problem with that. It's not my money. <laughs> um, uh, but I don't think that's necessarily where AI is going to go because in order to use a super smart AI, we have to start by trying to use super smart humans and they're not doing that yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Despite so many pros and cons involved in you know, getting the kind of results, we are still so careful 
in terms of judging a script, in terms of analyzing it, when we actually do not know all the analysis is going to uh, be, it's never going to be 100% accurate. In fact, we don't even know if it's going to be 50 or 60% accurate, you know. So why, yeah. is, why is there so much emphasis uh, that's going with algorithms, That that's how Netflix is selecting scripts, despite all of that, 95% is trash. Yeah, if that's that's generous if you include all scripts. I, I think <laughs> it's it's a mix of things, right? So yeah. I think, first of all, to say that we, the vast majority of people uh, in the film industry have run away to join the circus. They haven't run away to do the accounts for the circus. Mm. We, we over-index on people who don't care about numbers. And so there is a natural rebalancing, uh, which mm-hmm. makes sense. Secondly, what we've seen over the last decade or so is a massive influx of a different type of person. So almost everyone who, let's say pre-2000, to pick a random period, almost anyone who was in the film industry came up through indie or studio films, and they were inculcated into this sort of way of thinking, and there wasn't there was a lot of groupthink. But with the rise of Netflix, and then after that, Amazon and um, Apple, you have mm-hmm. people from Silicon Valley. You have people who have a completely different mindset who arguably in many cases don't care about the product but care about the business and the next you know the next round of funding or whatever. And so they're fundamentally a different type of person. Not better, not worse, just they have a different value system and they're more likely to have gone to business school than art school. And so those people have been all of a sudden injected into our industry and have been very successful in many areas because they have managed to ignore a lot of the conventions that don't work and also because they've come at the right time and you know, with pandemics and, and you know, faster internet speeds and bigger TVs. So that has had a massive effect. And also we have to remember that the industry used to be a lot smaller and a lot more closed. So uh, if in the past there were far fewer films made, and there were fewer gatekeepers, but the gatekeepers were more powerful. So that promoted homogeny and nepotism, Certainly, as a me as a white middle class man wouldn't have had that much problem in getting into a room and saying, "Hey, chaps, can I make a film?" But almost anyone else would have wouldn't you know they wouldn't get any of those opportunities. And so, as you have more people in, as you have a more open industry, there is naturally going to be more competition, and people are going to be able to have an edge if they're using something different. And as I said, people previously had under-indexed on data, and and also, I mean, there is more data as well as as things are more digital, it's easier to track. You know, a film comes out today and there, and there are so many data points online that we can track with it, whether it's reviews or um, screenings or like that. But if you're trying to study a film from the 1970s, you haven't got contemporaneous digital data. You've only got, you can maybe got the runtime and maybe you can look at reviews, but you just have less data. When Today we track everything. I've got a ring that tracks my sleep. You know, yeah. like, you can tr- every, <laughs> yeah. everything has to be plugged in and recharged. And so, like, you can, we're in the quantified world now. And so, natural doesn't, I'm not even sure that's better, but it definitely means that if you have data, you crunch it. And if you crunch it, you have a chart. And if you have a chart, you definitely show someone and say, look at my chart. So, you get what you measure. And so, uh, yeah, there are more data points. And so, therefore, more people are, are showing them off. I'm, I'm not convinced people are making smarter choices than they did 30 years ago, but they're probably making fairer choices when it comes to hiring and which stories get told mm-hmm. probably you know steven the, the most difficult part of making a film is getting your studio in place or getting your finances in place and do you think if filmmakers are going to show the analysis of their script and go to a studio the chances of making the film is going to be faster um 
I don't know because the thing is ultimately it's a beauty contest. The film, the studios have to make films every year, right? Mm. I, I meant it as a figurative beauty contest, but I've realized mm. it probably is a literal beauty contest as well. Um, I meant more just that they, they have to make a certain number of films. Mm. They have to have, they've got a certain number of release slots, which means that you don't have to make a good film. You have to make the best film, but or at least you have to convince them that your film's going to be best, not just, mm. not just good. Mm. If they've only got 10 slots and you're the 11th film, they're not going to make another film if they haven't got the facility to release it or whatever. Mm. So if everyone is using analysis, you should use analysis. If everyone is just trying to do like a really good pitch, then why bring an analysis? So there is a competition factor there, um, mm. which, does, which does make a difference. But what I would say also is that the, the, the timing of when indie films certainly fail, if they, if they fail, has shifted in a rather, it's a rather unfortunate way for indie filmmakers. So... In the years, let's say pre-2000, when you're making a film on film, let's say in the 1990s, you're, you're trying to save up and you're buying Super 16 film stock and, and then you're filming it and then you're processing it and then trying to get your film out to festivals and then released. You had to buy the film stock, which was expensive. And then also you had to process it. And the labs knew that filmmakers are not worth anything, you know, not, not, not worth their debts. So they wouldn't release the film stock, the processed stock until you paid the bill. I remember this. Because they, they know what they're doing. And so the really expensive part was in the making of the film. But because there weren't that many films, or certainly comparative to now, you had a much higher chance and expectation that you would get a release and that release would not be the you know two screenings you might get today. Whereas now, shooting a film is trivial. You know, my iPhone has enough cameras on it that can shoot a cinema quality film to many, much of a degree. Um, and yet the hard part now is in the distribution you know, is reaching the audiences and monetizing. So before, if you were a deluded or filmmaker or that was going to fail, let's say that, that you were that person, you would fail very early on before you'd spent much money. Mm. Whereas now it's very easy to be deluded and spend, you know, commit a lot of time, energy and passion uh, and then fail later on when you think, oh, I've made a film and everyone says, yeah, you and the other 500 get in the queue and then you're not one of the ones that gets a deal and then it disappears. So that's unfortunate for filmmakers that the mm. failure... The timing of failure has produced is come after more effort than it was mm, previously. Interesting. Do you see AI coming in and saving the distribution of films? Well, I mean, lots of people have over the years, whether it's AI or other technologies, yeah. they often they often come to me because they just uh, they think I'll I think they think I'll understand. In some cases, I do, but in many cases, they say, "Hey, Stephen, Stephen, I've invented a new thing that is going to solve the problem in the film industry to do with." unfair distribution which films get selected and how much mm. how much transparency there is how much money they make whatever it might be mm. and i always have to have the same conversation which is look why do you think the system is so unfairly imbalanced the way it is right now it's not an accident it's, it's not a lack of technology it's because there's a small number of people in sales and distribution who make a full-time living out of not paying filmmakers and of there's always new filmmakers there's so many new filmmakers that actually the incentives are uh, misaligned and the industry is they, they're you know the main customer a sales agent has uh, the main client relationship they have is with the distributor because it's the same distributor they're doing 20 deals with it year on year whereas that will be with 20 different filmmakers who if they never make another film again they don't care because there's more coming down the road so the unfairness that the inefficiency in the system is not a lack of technology it's a lack of willingness you know, that some people are unfairly making more money and having more power and, and they're abusing it and they're not going to change it just because, you know, like if someone is stealing and you, you you don't say to them, oh, look, I found an easier way for you to purchase this item. They're stealing because they want to steal it or because they, they feel they have to. It's not that they didn't know how to buy it. 
Mm. And so I'm not sure that AI will improve that because you, even if the perfect AI existed, you need people willing and the people who need to be willing are the ones benefiting from the current inefficiencies. Mm. So until you can build a completely separate distribution you know, a relationship with audiences independent to the current systems, to some degree, you've got to play in the current systems um, with or without AI. Mm-hmm. What do you see as one of the major challenges that uh, everyone making films is going to face maybe in the next two or three years? Well, I mean, there's a there's an existential crisis coming, yeah. which I don't know how much people... You know, yeah. like you said, I was at Cannes this year and, and yeah. everything was back to pre-pandemic times. Yeah. And everyone's like, oh, thank God it's all back. And whereas actually, I think we're in a zombie state. I think it doesn't mean it's dead. It just means it's in a very different state than I think people think it's in. Mm. So let's say that we, let's flash forward three, four years. I don't know the time frame because it all depends on technology with AI advances. But let's assume it moves forward at the speed it's moving now. In a small number of years, I will be able to just type into a something I would like a new episode of Mork and Mindy starring my cousin Phil and I want it to be about bananas and I'll hit enter and then on my TV will brand new beautiful video with a new episode starring Robin Williams that was never created before will start playing and I'll enjoy it and that will be the new form of piracy wow. mm. you know when we're not stealing things that exist we're stealing things that never existed and mm. if that's my own server or it's my own computer the owners of Mork and Mindy never know that existed they can't stop me so the studios have based their entire work on patents and copyright. And, you know, that's even the origin of Hollywood. That's why, because they were running away from Edison's patents. Um, That is under threat. That is going to disappear. You know, when I can instantly create an alternative that is not only free, but tailored and brand new, I'm not going to pay to watch the old episodes of The Office when I can generate new ones trivially. That is coming within a decade, I'm I'm guessing. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, why would I pay anybody else? Why would I tell anybody else? Wow. Um, and I think, so the concepts of copyright as we know them mm. are fundamentally going to change. Um, wow. And I don't know quite what that means. And I so that's why I'm surprised the industry is not engaging with this on an existential level. I guess everyone's hoping it's happening after they retire or after they can make just their next film or whatever. We've never been very good at embracing technology at the film industry. Mm-hmm. that's a massive shift that's like a tectonic shift that's totally it's another world of making uh, a content i would say not even films yeah i mean you think about how expensive an international phone call used to be or how yeah. valuable a telegram was now you know you and i are talking to each other, uh, talking to each other across continents yeah. we didn't pay any money for this directly we didn't yeah. expect there to be any hassle and if the audio is anything less than perfect or in sync we'd be like oh this is outrageous like we we are there is no transaction going on explicitly for this. So obviously there's infrastructure behind the scenes, but compare this to let's say you and I wanted to have an hour long phone call a hundred years ago. That would or even we wanted to have any sort of inter, inter interaction two hundred years ago. The the process of writing this down, letters being physically delivered and back would have made what we're doing right now seem you know, a life's work or mm. something only for the rich and the powerful and, mm. you know, sending emissaries to each other. And actually we just, we just texted each other and then said, shall we jump on? And you sent me a link and mm. I clicked on it. That fundamentally changes the concept of long distance communication and interaction. And that's the equivalent that we're going to have with copyright and art. And we're just not engaging with that yet, which is, mm. 
Somebody will, like the way the studios ignored piracy and then uh, ignored digital distribution. So piracy came up and then the studios kind of started selling us expensive things. And then Netflix came up. And, you know, if we if we don't get in the front of this, someone more will come and take advantage of it and serve the audiences. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's been so much confusion that's been going on, I think, post-pandemic mainly, because I also read Ted Hope, if you know of Ted Hope. Mm-hmm. The oh, yeah, I know Ted well, yeah. Yeah, his, his newsletters, um, his blog rather, which he writes on Substack. And uh, we've been facing the same issues in India. Everyone is sort of confused, confused about what to put their money in, how to generate funds uh, when it comes to all kinds of shows, you know. And people are just wondering if commerce is the direction, commercial shows is the direction that they should go, studio is the direction they should go, or they should just... And I think it's everywhere all over the world right now where funding and where what to put your money in is a huge question mark, you know. So do you see this getting sort of... Where is it going to go? Where is the money going to be put in? I mean, ultimately, the, the gatekeepers do what their suits their own worldview mm. and their own image and their own progression until they try and push against the tide at which point they tend to lose so like i said they'll try they try to push back against digital distribution but ultimately audiences want it and audiences will win so if you're wanting to look at a medium or long-term time frame and say okay where is things going just look at what humans want mm. um and i think it was jack dorsey that said if you want to become a billionaire find something that people already do and remove one step mm. so uber didn't invent taxis but it just removed the hassle of one element and so if you can think about what the audiences want and how do they want it, and if you can sort of intuit that, then you have a chance of being ahead of the curve. Although, you know, there are warnings from history, things like Quibi, which was the hugely funded um, project that was doing short um, content that just completely flopped and, and took billions with it because their bet was that audiences wanted to watch high quality, expensive content that was in short form. And actually the audiences from what we've seen, don't care about the quality so much because they're more interested in having... I mean, look at TikTok. Is, they, they wanted it to be what TikTok is now, but TikTok is user-generated and far lower quality in each piece of content, but you've got far stronger narratives as far as you're following the same creator who publishes five times a day or whatever, and their algorithm is better or whatever. So mm-hmm. no one really knows where the audience is going to go, but if you're trying to intuit for yourself, I would suggest looking at what people are frustrated about in the real world. What do they actually want? How do they actually use it? And then think about what the system, what the current systems are not allowing them doing to do, or the technology that will change in the near future that will allow them to do that. And then that's probably the direction of travel, I would imagine. Mm, what do human want? Humans want. Wow. <laughs> okay. I, <hope laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a, big, it's, a big, it's, yeah. A, it's a big question. I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, uh, we don't know what we want. You know, we're the most oh, confused yeah. read now. <laughs> I don't know what I want all the, all the time. I don't know what to have for dinner tonight. But, you but you know, humans are, what is it they say in, in behavioral economics? Predictably irrational. So yeah. we may not know. And if you ask me, I certainly won't know. But yeah. at the same time, our behavior is herd behavior. And you, uh, but maybe a nice way of thinking about it is, you know, when you see a field and there is a proper um, a path that goes all around the edges, but right through the middle is a bit where people have been walking and they've worn down all of the, um, the foliage. That's called a desire line. And it's what it is that all these humans have individually just thought, I'm just going to cut across there. And over time, it's become a path. That's what happens with art as well, which is that if we keep trying to deliver them X, but they really want Y, they find ways of getting Y. And then suddenly someone commercializes that or turns it down. And then they do incredibly well, like Netflix. 
So look for the desire lines in people's activities and behaviors and try and turn that into a business, I guess. Mm, yeah, awesome. That's great. Thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate your time and all your answers. Wow. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I've just asked more questions than I've given any answers. But I, I listen, I it's been lovely to chat with you. Thank you very much for inviting me on here. And also for the work you do on the podcast. I, I know how much work it takes. And it's really lovely that you keep doing this for your audience. So yeah, keep it up. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks, Stephen. future looks very exciting because AI might fundamentally change the way we see movies, the way we make movies and a lot more that is unpredictable. What are your predictions for AI? You can write to us, you can connect with us on a freshly brewed Insta handle, the Dot Archers podcast and of course someone is there on LinkedIn. Take care guys, stay well.